Let's take our Bibles and look to 1 Peter today, 1 Peter chapter 2. How many of you skipped breakfast this morning? Let me see your hands. Oh, good news for you. We have beef by, I mean, uh, hot dogs available for you <laughs> after life group. Uh, we're having our summer fellowship lunch after our life group, uh, after service, and you're heading over to life group. While you're in life group, there will be a transformation taking place in a lot of the building and in the corridors, uh, out on the patio, down in the dining room, uh, those areas will be transformed for you to grab a quick hot dog and your little friend, little Debbie, and maybe an IBC root beer that will be iced down and we'll just enjoy some sweet fellowship together. And if you're not engaged in a life group, this is a perfect day for you to do that. Uh, we'll have some additional folks out in Guest Connection, which is the main entry area. Uh, just stop by there and tell them that you want to go to life group today. They'll take you to a life group, one of several in your age group available to you. They'll take you to one, introduce you to someone, get you settled. Uh, let that little nervousness die down that everybody has, including me when there's new things. And then after life group, you'll just have lunch here uh, on the house. and It'll just be an opportunity for us to fellowship together. So I, I hope you'll join us for that time. Now over the past 11 Sundays, we have been diving into some of the great doctrinal and theological truths that First Peter lays out for us. It's one of the wonders of the scripture how so much can be packed in such a concise letter uh, but Peter like many of the other epistles begins his letter with rich doctrinal truths and then after he lays the foundation of great theological doctrinal truths he begins to tell us uh, midway or so about where we are right now how we can begin applying those truths in our day by day, day living so everything about our life ought to be banked in truth. It ought to have truth as its foundation. We, we, you don't have to kind of figure it out as you go. You just live out the expressions of truth that God has given to us in the scripture. And we receive those truths by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, William was baptized this morning. He was baptized by faith because his salvation was by faith in Jesus Christ. And now he's risen to walk in newness of life by the Holy Spirit by faith. So everything that we do is by faith. Hey, as Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God without faith. So everything about our living is by faith. We're receiving these truths by faith and now we're learning to exercise those same truths by faith. And so as we've been reading through, there's just been these marvelous truths that God has given to us. And maybe one of the apex of those is found in verse 9 where he describes you and me who are alive in Christ as being a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of God's own possession. You can't get more rich than the truths that are found in that verse. And so it's evident that God loves us. God loves us. And that's the way Peter begins the text that we're going to begin reading today. He announces that we are the beloved of God. Look what he says in verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, 
which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now I want to mention three points. Unless you think I'm going to shortchange you with three points, I'm going to give you two extra with each of those. So <laughs> we're, going to, we're going to talk about three points, but I'm going to dive into each of those just a little bit. Look at the first one. The Christian identity is in Christ Jesus. It's what Peter wants you and me to understand as well as all the gospel writers, that the Christian identity is in Christ. You don't have to be like the world, try to figure out who you are. You don't have to brand yourself. You're, you're not this, that, or the other. Your identity is in Jesus Christ. As Christ is now, by faith, so are you. And what a wonderful truth that is. So let's break that down a little bit and recognize as Peter is describing this to us, in our identity in Christ, we are the beloved of God and we are the beloved of fellow saints. If you're here today and your faith is in Christ, you're the beloved of God and fellow saints. So God's love for us is sure. That love for, that God has for us is not hinged on the happenings of the world. It's not hinged on what your experiences are. It's not hinged on the things that come into your life that, that may cause you to doubt. That your love is disconnected from all those hinge points. The love has already been solidified. God has already guaranteed it, sealed it with the Holy Spirit and shown you with clear evidence that you are loved of God because the beloved Son of God, Jesus Christ, was dying on the cross to announce to you and the world that God loves you. He would be willing to lay down his own life for you. So sometimes we experience difficult days and seasons in life making it challenging for us to feel the love of God. But here's what I want you to understand. Feelings have nothing to do with God's love. It's based on reality. In those times of desperation we may be tempted to doubt the Lord's love for us. However, if you know God, you know God's love for you and it's a blessed love. So knowing God and knowing the Word of God is to know the love of God. For God is love and His Word demonstrates over and over just how much He loves us, the profoundness of His love. Listen, the realities of grace and mercy and justice shout out to you from God, I love you. It's an amazing, wondrous truth that the God of the universe chooses to love us. And so the exiled Christians that Peter is writing to who were experiencing significant hardships and trials, Peter wants them to emphatically know that God loves them, so he announces to them, Beloved, you are beloved. I call Kay, my wife now, 36 years, many things. Uh, if you're hearing me around the house, I'll call out to her, Hey, wife! <laughs> Or I'll call her more affectionately wifey or Katie. But my most pronounced way of calling out to her is to give her the name love. Hey love, will you? Hey love, did you? Hey love, let's do. Hey love, let's go. And what I'm doing when I'm doing that is I'm announcing to her she is my beloved I can't get a better expression of that for her. She is the one 
that my heart is given to on this planet. And that's the way that Peter is announcing God's love for us. He's saying to all of us who are in faith in Christ, you are beloved of God. You're God's loved. Verse 10 states this ironclad case that we are the beloved of God. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. At the conclusion of that is this real crescendo of God saying, you're my beloved. I love you. So perhaps you've questioned God's love due to calamity and suffering and hardship and failure. If so, let me remind you that God has ransomed you from your deadly ways. God has ransomed you from your sin and his judgment. God has ransomed you and given you hope by the precious blood of Christ. And he caused you to be born again to a living hope. And he has established for you an, an eternal inheritance that is guaranteed, secured in heaven, awaiting you. And he has entrusted you with his own honor Listen, my friends, God loves you. God loves you as a Christ follower. Now, why is that so important? Because if you're going to exercise in the richness of the truths that we're going to express today and apply these great truths, you have to first know you're the beloved of God. You're not working to earn God's love. You're not hoping to achieve more of God's love. God already loves you. You are his beloved. All right, so that's the first point, that if you're going to recognize your identity in Christ, you must first recognize God's love for you, and the saints have a love for you that has been poured into them by God. But look at the second aspect of our identity in Christ. According to Peter, we are sojourners and exiles in the world, but distinguished citizens of heaven. So God loves us, no doubt, and has established a new life for us, adopting us into his family and giving us a heavenly citizenship. So we live in a world where we no longer belong because we belong to God. And we are surrounded by a culture that is not our own. Our culture is unto God, his son and his spirit. So like the initial readers of this passage, we are sojourners and exiles in a very immediate way. In that context, certainly they were exiles. They have been removed from their home, moved out of the territory, and put in another place. You can't get greater in exile in the present than that. You have been moved out. But he's talking about not just that immediate context for these Christians that are living in a very desperate place. He's saying it to all of us. We are exiles. We are sojourners passing through. We're just on a journey. We recognize we're not, we're not here to, to let our roots grow deep. We're here to, to sojourn knowing that our roots are in heaven. Our home is in heaven. In other words, we're citizens of heaven where our king resides and rules from his throne, where he is gathering fellow saints to himself, where he holds our our inheritance with security, and he has devoted himself to prepare for our homecoming. So in that, we are exiles. We are sojourners. Knowing and trusting and applying these realities persuade us to live a life that's very different from those around us. And that life is to be lived with Christ-exalting, God-honoring ways. So these realities must be certain in our lives, in our mind, and in our heart, that heaven is our home, 
Heaven is the place of our citizenship. That Jesus is our king. We belong to him. And God's love for me is complete. You can do nothing to garner more of God's affection for you than he already has given to you. Those are great realities, my friends. And if you will trust him in that, if you'll let that be the standard by which you're thinking, then you can exercise in these truths. And that's the application that Peter is driving us to. The more we identify with Jesus and his love for us and our eternal homeland, the more impactful our lives will be on this planet. The more you understand the realities that God has already afforded you in Christ Jesus, the more impacting your life can be. So Peter calls us to significant Christian living, and it's only possible if we know God's love and we recognize we are sojourners and exiles. If you've got it, say, I got it. Okay, good. Look at number two. The Christian imperative is to abstain and do. The whole Christian imperative comes down to these two things, abstain and do. Now, abstain, he says in verse 11, from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So, we must continually abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against our souls. Now, passions of the flesh are all about the old sinful natures. You say, where did those old sinful natures come from? The moment you were born and that doctor slapped you on the rear. You got them from your birth. It's the Adamic sin that just gets passed down from generation to generation. You and I, like David, were born in sin and we choose sin. And that's because we have a fleshly passion. It comes prepackaged in us. But now good news, the Spirit has come to break that hold. The Spirit has come to take those of us who were once captive to all those passions of our flesh. And He's come to set us free from all those things in Christ. And He lives within us to empower us to that kind of living. So He is calling for us to an imperative of abstaining from those passions of the flesh. Now, this is not intended to be an exhaustive list, but Paul has given us some indicators about what the passions of the flesh look like. I thought we might go there. It's in Galatians chapter 5. By the way, if you want to do a little bit more dig work, and you want to see the conflict that is between the flesh and the Spirit, the Holy Spirit that resides within us, Galatians 5 is one of those passages that will help you understand that. But now let's look at just the passions of the flesh that he mentions. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. Boy, that sounds like a, a brawl, doesn't it? And it is. That which you were born in, the Spirit is coming against that. That sin that resides within your flesh, the Spirit has come to battle that. Now, Jesus has come to wage the war and bring victory. And we will have victory. The joy, part of the joy of my salvation is knowing that one day my body is going to match perfectly what God has already done in my spirit. And there will not be a residual of sin in my flesh. There won't be an inkling of it. There, there won't even be anything there that would 
tend to be a temptation for me, it will forever be gone. And that's the glorification of being with Christ. And when you're with Christ, you'll be like Christ. And if your faith is in Jesus, that's the day coming for you. But until then, there's a battle that is going on. And it's between the spirit and the flesh and the flesh and the spirit. Paul is identifying that. He says they're opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things that you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. In other words, if you live according to the power of the Holy Spirit, it will result in holiness and righteousness. But if you're living under the law, trying to do it, trying to get this thing right on your own... You are certain to produce unrighteous behavior. You are not going to be able to do this on your own. If you have thought that coming to church is going to help you clean up your life, you're absolutely in the wrong direction. Christ did not come to help you to do your life better. Christ came to crucify your life and my life on the cross of Jesus because it was worthless and hopeless and eternally damned. And so he chose to bear our sin and our life there on the cross. And by faith we join him there and we die with him there. And then on the third day Jesus rose from the grave and he says, I'll share that victory to you as well that you might rise and walk in newness of life by the Spirit. Somebody say amen to that. So Paul helps us to see that battle. But now look in verse 19. It begins to help us to unpack what are these things of the flesh. Well, he says the works of the flesh are evident. Here they are. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now let me just pause here for a moment. The workings of the flesh, that which is against God, against the nature of God, those things are manifest. And now Paul is just talking about those manifestations, those way in which the flesh expose this sinful nature that is in us. And he says the first three here, sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality. Now listen, the culture around us is having a free-for-all when it comes to sexual immorality. The culture is trying to redefine and change and adapt and to get everybody to think that this perversion that is prevailing in the world today is common, it's, it's neutral, and it ought to be accepted, and it ought to be paraded, and it ought to be cheered and applauded. And if you don't get on their train with them, then you ought to be denounced. Here's what, here's what God's Word says. That is a passion of your flesh that is waging war against your soul. And so you wonder why we're such in arms over this. Because the very souls of people are in jeopardy when they stay given to the things of the flesh. And the souls of Christians are being battled against when they move towards the culture's expression of sexual immorality, impurity, and sensuality rather than God's holy standard. It's a big deal. He says in verse 20, it also includes idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, he says, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Why is it so important that we talk about this? Because those who engage in such activity expose their flesh is still winning 
and they do not inherit the kingdom of God. Christ has come to set us free from that. Christ has come to set up his throne in our heart. And so we yield to him. We live a life differently. He takes those sins that have been held against us and he erases that certificate of debt. He gives us his righteousness. He moves into us by his Holy Spirit and things are different. So the cravings and the passions of the flesh wage war against the new heart and the new nature of God that has been given to every believer and follower of Jesus Christ. So the term that Peter uses here in the original language, which is translated wage war, that is an active soldier moving against his enemy. It's a military term that says this is, this is somebody who is actively pursuing the death of the enemy. They're waging war against. And so he says, that's what's happening, the flesh against your soul. The flesh is waging war. However, in Christ, we are overcomers. So we must be convinced of the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ and filled with his spirit. God has begun this work in us and he is faithful to complete it to the end. We must trust him on that. The fact that the Bible instructs us to abstain from fleshly passions tells us that he has empowered us to do just that. God is not going to set us up for failure, but instead he sets up, us up for spiritual victories. And we must know that we are no longer slave to sin, but Christ himself has set us free. You need to recognize the tempter is not your master. Instead, the king of righteousness is your master. If your faith is in Christ, and we must recognize and denounce the lies and the lures that the enemy uses that come against those passions of our flesh to rise them against us, raise them against us. We must conclude that fleshly desires have no place in heaven. Everybody believe that? Fleshly desires have no place in heaven. Sin has no place in heaven. Thereby it must have no place in us. Because we are citizens of heaven. We must grow to love the prospects of heaven more than we love the compromises of the world. This is what Peter is calling out to us in Christ. We have something far greater than what the earthly pleasures are offering us. We have a fully satisfying relationship with God. We have his engulfing presence and we have his unadulterated promises. So press towards those things rather than the things of the world. So to abstain means to avoid altogether. And it's, a, uh, it's written in the original language in its present tense, which means it's not just avoiding here and there, it's avoiding and keep on avoiding regularly. It's a continuous action. You're going to have to avoid it and constantly avoid it. And when you think you got it, you still got to avoid it because when you think you stand, take heed lest you fall. You've got to go after this thing constantly and abstain from it regularly. Don't, don't be given to it in one little bit. You've got to always avoid it because it is like a roaring lion crouch ready to devour you. So this continuous movement of abstaining from that which is of the flesh through this new nature that God has given us, this holy longing that is within us, Recognizing that sin is replete in our flesh, we trust in the power of God to do a mighty work to help us to abstain from those things. All right, so that's one aspect, abstaining from that which is a fleshly passions. But look at the second aspect of that. 
He says, not only do you abstain, you have to pursue doing, persistently do honorable good works. This is a rhythm that is constant in the Bible. You take certain things off and you put certain things on. You take those things of the flesh off and you put on the things of the Spirit. That's what a Galatians is going to help you to identify as well as some other places in the Scripture. So keep your conduct honorable among Gentiles. Keep it among the Gentiles in an honorable, good way. So let's define those terms real quick. When he's talking about conduct, he's talking about these day-to-day patterns of our life. In the same way that we continually abstain from the passions of the flesh, we have to pursue diligently, constantly, continuously in doing good, morally good. He's talking about a conduct that is a good conduct that is able to be demonstrated before other people that you literally pursue. So in my life, idle time is the devil's playground. I need to be pursuing things constantly. When I have idleness in my life, my flesh tends to rise up. And so the way to combat that is for me to be pursuing good things, doing good things. I told somebody this last week, and it's true, work is my hobby. I'm not talking about ministry. I'm talking about when when I'm outside of the realm of doing something related to Meadowbrook, You can find me on a tractor, a mower, with a weed eater or something in my hand. I'm working. I am taking that land back unto the glory of God. The curse is constantly bringing weeds and briars and all this stuff that I don't want that is ugly. So I'm constantly battling that. I'm working to bring about good. And maybe you've got a hobby that's like that. You're working to bring about good, honorable things. I think that's of God. So you are abstaining from fleshly things and you are pursuing good, honorable things. And I would say this, Peter has insight here. The more we pursue good, honorable things, the less we battle with the fleshly things. So he's helping us to live out this or have conduct that is living out the life in Christ. And when he's talking about doing it among the Gentiles, he's not talking about just non-Jewish people. He's talking about unbelievers in general. So he's talking about living out this life of goodness before those who are unbelievers and live it in an honorable way. In the original language of the Bible, that speaks of a beautifully morally good life, one that is uh, from a pure heart, one where the Spirit of God's nature is being demonstrated. So that's an honorable life. So according to Peter, we must abstain from fleshly passions and keep on abstaining and pursue and keep on pursuing the good honorable work among the Gentiles. Let them watch that happen. All right, I'm at the third point. You say, wow, I thought that was going to go a little slow. Oh no, I told you. We would dig quick, right? The third point. The Christian witness is powerful and glorifying. When you live out in this honorable way, that is a powerful witness. So he says in verse 12, So that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That verse is so intriguing to me. 
Because this isn't just uh, going door to door, knocking, sharing Christ with somebody. This isn't talking about Christ with somebody you're at lunch with, although those things are very important and ought to be regular practices for us, just engaging in the gospel. He is saying, when they are lying about you, when they are deceptive about you, when they come against you in a harsh, evil way, and you are bearing forth good things, when God visits them with grace, they'll remember that. And it just may be the resource, the tool that God will use when he is drawing their heart to himself, your powerful witness. It's a really intriguing truth that he's sharing for us here. Let me just kind of break it down. Our temperament, our tempered righteous response, even when criticized erroneously, reveal Christ's transformation in us to God's glory. Uh, if you're watching in your handout, just kind of following my notes as I'm going, just circle that one because that one's a little bit meaty and you might want to come and chew on that one for a minute. Because there's some truths in that that we ought to have within us. Digest those and express them. So the Christian witness is never brighter than when darkness is abounding around us. That's when our witness is the brightest. And here's what Peter is saying, look, the evil that is around you is dark. The harshness of people coming against you, that's pretty dark and heavy. So when you bear forth the light of honorable, good, moral things to those who are coming against you in their de deceptive, lying, evil ways, you are shining ever so brightly. And when you think this is not making a difference you have not yet come to the day of visitation when the Lord brings grace to that individual, offering life to that individual. You're not just there yet. Listen, this world is not about you. Your life is not about you. Your life is for the glory of God, just like this world is for the glory of God. And if he's going to use all that bickering and all that evil and all that lying that comes against you in order for you to demonstrate what a transformed life is, so be it. To God's glory, so be it. Watching the response. Many people are just watching the response. They don't even acknowledge that they're watching, much less acknowledge your grace. But they're watching. And Peter is alerting those who are so heavily persecuted that they're watching. Can you think of any better example than Jesus Christ in this? He's the perfect example. Isaiah 53 talked about him you know, long before he started his earthly ministry, centuries before, he was oppressed and was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lion, lion is, excuse me, lamb is led to the slaughter, and the sheep that is before its shearer is silent, so he opened not his mouth. No matter how people opposed Jesus, he just kept on pursuing the Father's will to seek and save the lost. He was task on, mission-oriented, going to get the glory out before the people there on that cross. And the manifestation of the Holy Spirit's nature in us is like that. I mean, of all the ways the Spirit is manifest, as we find there in Galatians, we find these several. It includes patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control. So when the evil ones, those who are pawns of the devil, 
when they're coming against you and they're lying about you and they are opposing you and just heaping it on and you manifest that spirit of God who dwells within you with those things, patience and kindness and goodness and gentleness and self-control, it is bearing forth a witness. Such holy characteristics can only be because God's spirit has empowered you in them. It's the new nature that God has given to you. In so doing, you are glorifying Christ of what it's like to have a transformed heart. You're letting the world see you're different. And Christ is that difference. So if you know history of the first century Christians, you'll know that when it speaks of the lying evil that was coming against him, what it's speaking of is unbelievers had labeled Christians as atheists because they had rejected the Roman idols and they refused to worship the emperor. And so they were labeled in that way. Non-believers claimed that they were cannibals because they misunderstood the Lord's teaching on the Lord's Supper. And people were deemed to be immoral because there were rumors about them loving one another. And unbelievers viewed them as counterproductive because they were not accepting of the social norms and the cultural godless trends that were going on. They were seen as interfering with commerce and business because they were opposed to slavery. So they were just labeled and lied against constantly. And here Peter is saying, in the dark opposition and the persecution that is coming against you, let the glory of Christ be demonstrated before those people. You say, well, they're not going to get it. It's not about you seeing them getting it. They're, they're not coming around. It's not about them coming around until the day of visitation. And if they don't come around in the day of God's visitation of grace, then God will use that very thing against them in justice. And he will be glorified in that. Trust God in the midst of those times. When a believer fails to react as the world does and responds in the nature of the Spirit, it catches people's attention. They may or may not tell you about it, but it is bringing glory to Christ. Later, Peter is going to write in the fourth chapter of this same epistle, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. It probably doesn't have to be said right now, but there is palpable tension in the world today and a growing antagonism against Christians. And the way we respond, the things we write, the peace and joy that we express is communicating a tremendous gospel impact on our life and what is available to people who will but receive Jesus Christ. Stay the course. Don't get hooked into the cultural naysayers. Don't be the antagonist. When you feel like venting, don't. Let the Spirit help you to respond in the way of Jesus Christ. And God will use that as an amazing tool for his call in people's lives. So our purposeful Christian living is a powerful evangelistic tool though it often comes amid challenges. Our response during those kind of hard times can be profoundly effective for unbelievers to come to Christ. And when God visits them, 
and he offers to them redemption, your good life and honorable conduct that has been lived over time in front of those people will be the tool that God will use. According to Grace Community Church and Pastor John MacArthur, Herb, Herb and Ruth Klingen were career missionaries. They retired in Southern California and lived out their final years of life ministering there at Grace Church. During World War II, the Klingons were held prisoner in a civilian internment camp. They were there not far in the Philippines. And it was a long and grueling ordeal for them. Near the end of the war, General Douglas MacArthur's successful campaign to liberate the Philippines by Japanese domination brought a freedom to those prisoners. There was a dramatic rescue in the dawn raid by those American paratroopers. And it was really one of the most remarkable experiences in all of that period of World War II. Herb Klingen, Klingen kept the diary of his experiences during the war. He kept that diary in a handmade one that was being given to him by his wife on their first Christmas there in the imprisonment. It was a burlap-bound, hand-embroidered notebook. And he just journaled, he just talked about what was going on. In his diary, he told how the captors were tortured and murdered and starved there in the camp. The prisoners particularly hated and feared Konishi, the commander of that camp. Herb described one of the cruel plans that Konishi had forced upon the Klingons and others who were inmates there in the camp. He had increased the food rations for them, which seems like a, a pretty good thing. But he was affording them only Pele with unhusked rice, the husk still on the rice. And eating the rice with its razor-sharp husk would actually cause intestinal bleeding, and the prisoners would actually bleed out in just a few hours. And so they would have to beat that rice or roll it with a stick to try to separate the husk and the rice kernel that they wanted to eat. But doing that was such an effort that it actually expended more calories than the rice would afford their bodies. It would be a cruel, long way to die. The Klingons and others were spared in 1945, February, when the Allied forces liberated that prison camp preventing them from being killed as the commander had so desired. Years later, the Klingons learned that Konishi had been found working there nearby in a golf course. When he was found, he was actually tried for his war crimes and convicted. Before his execution, he actually professed conversion to Jesus Christ, saying that he had been deeply affected by the testimony of the Christian missionaries who he had persecuted for all those years. See, my friends, our Christian living is an evangelistic tool that is powerful. You think it's not making a difference. You think that nobody is watching, but my friends, they are watching. And in the moment of God's visitation, when he gives grace, when he calls them by name, if he so chooses to do so, 
then it will be your witness that he will use along with his gospel truth that will call them to himself. Stay the course. As antagonism is rising, stay the course. As the world is degrading, stay the course. As your flesh is warring against your soul, stay the course. To the glory of Jesus and to his honorable spirit, stay the course. Let's pray together. We thank you, Lord, that you alone are truth and light and life. And you have come in Christ to give those things to us. We receive them by faith. For those who have been in darkness, remaining in their sin, in judgment, damned to eternal separation, I pray that your grace and your mercy is being extended and your faith is being poured out in a way that they will walk in the truth of the gospel. And this day they will lay down all their choices that have been so self-centered, all their sinful ways that have been so antagonistic against your righteousness and all the ways they have lived for themselves rather than for your glory. I pray that they would lay those down, confess them as sin and walk away to receive your grace, your righteousness, and your Holy Spirit, that they might walk forever different and experience eternity is radical. I pray it to the glory and good of Jesus, his name, his people. Amen and amen.